Welcome to NavChat, the show for the New Zealand orienteering and navigation sports community. Hey, Emmy, thanks for coming on NavChat. Yeah, it's good to be here. So you're the second um, shared co-host that we've we've had. Um, so it would mm-hmm. be good to, again, see if we can get some uh, more, more variation in the things we talk about. Uh, we had Joe Lynch mm-hmm. uh, sh- sharing the, the, the co-hosting last month. So it'll be good to uh, hear what different and interesting things um, you've also brought to, to talk about. Uh, but first, how have you been the past uh, month? What, what have you been up to orienteering-wise? Yeah, so um, it's been quite a different month for us. We've just moved to um, Vancouver in Canada uh, in August, the start of August. So we've been finding our way around here. We have actually done uh, a couple of orienteering events. Um, we did the British uh Columbia Orienteering Championships over the weekend, which was um, really cool, actually. The map and terrain were very tricky, lots of rocks, quite uneven ground, felled trees, um, and a very detailed and busy map that was um, hard to, you know, focus on what were going to be the most obvious features to use for the navigation. Um, but, but yeah, really enjoyed that. And they had a forest sprint as well with that um competition which was also surprisingly um really enjoyable um and since then unfortunately i seem to have come down with covid so i'm still recovering from that so we'll just have to see if i can um keep my voice for this chat um but hopefully that'll be okay yeah it sounded good so far so it sounds like it um sounds like you're not too sick which which is good yeah, it could be worse. I've definitely heard of people having worse experience with COVID. Cool. Um, and you were also in Europe um, prior to that. So um, how has your motivation been after Europe? I know sometimes people report I've been really motivated before Europe and then just not being able to kind of muster the same enthusiasm and then being disappointed by that. How have you felt after Europe? Yeah, I think um, having been to Europe quite a few times now, I've become quite realistic about you know what my expectations are going over there I think it's it would be pretty hard going over for the first time and seeing just how high the level of competition is especially for those people who haven't um, been to Europe and have had uh, training and races impacted by COVID over the last few years so they would have experienced quite a big step up in the required level of performance But for me, I kind of go over just to really enjoy myself, see what I'm capable of, um, just put forward my best effort on the day. Um, Sometimes I feel like I achieved that. Sometimes I feel most of the time there's there's things I could have improved on. Um, So, so yeah, in July um, and June, we had had walk, which I found it was really fun, but um, I wasn't just at the end of the day, fast enough to qualify for the finals, which was a bit of a shame. And I actually think the level has been increasing in the women, um, as I have been able to qualify in the past. And um, perhaps the women are just stepping it up and getting faster, which is really cool to see. Um, But it just shows you need to have that pure speed if you want to qualify for what finals in the women's grades these days. Um, And then following that, we had um, some weeks in Europe and Italy, Um, where we did the five days of Italy and we also did O-Ringen. And both of those were really fantastic competitions, really well organised. 
um, and just just had a great time. Um, I really liked the the rocky, steep um, sort of alpine terrain of Italy. I find I can navigate relatively well on that sort of terrain, um, uh, whereas Oringen was quite a bit more challenging with the sort of vague Swedish terrain, particularly in the infamous um, Lundsen area around Uppsala where some of the races were held. Uh, so I definitely found the navigation a lot more challenging there, but felt that I improved throughout the week um, as the competitions went on. Um, so, so it was a really good learning experience. Um, and yeah, at the end of the day, I just go to Europe to try and um, have my best performance, try and improve my orienteering, test myself against some good competition. And, and I feel that's what I got out of it. So, so yeah, it was, it was really good. As to um, motivation coming out of Europe, I'm pretty happy to just have some low-key time, have a rest from serious goals or training for the time being. Um, really, it's given multiple things. Um, given we've moved to Canada, there's there's been quite a lot to organise and a lot of stress and change in routine. So I don't feel the need to add heavy training on top of that at this point in time. But probably when we're more settled, um, I'll be keen to get back into setting some goals and, and training for some races, whether that's trail running or orienteering yeah yeah I definitely feel that there's this very strong undercurrent of motivation but then not that much urgency also I feel like I've got a long time to prepare for next year but the experiences that we did have in in Europe this year definitely made me highly motivated to race again and I'm um, similar to you it was less because I did well but more because I showed some signs of improvement and, yeah, that's that's just so motivating and encouraging just, just to improve. And at, at the end of the day, like I've been around doing orienteering long enough that I kind of know, um, you know, my speed isn't as fast as the top orienteers. So so what I look for is, you know, with, within my capabilities, how can I step it up with my navigation? How can I be more aggressive? Um, how can I, yeah, just basically get the most out of my own personal performance and that gives me that satisfaction. Cool. Well, that's really interesting to, to hear that. And I think we might be able to um, compare that to our guests uh, this month. I've got on Scott Smith and Heidi Stolberger, who were at uh, World University Champs. Um, not wasn't their first time in Europe for both of them, but um, it was, you know, they're, they're relatively early in in the journey compared to us having done um, a few world champs and world university champs before then. So um, let's have a listen to see uh, what their experience was like of their uh, time in Switzerland. Yeah, be great to hear. Oh, Scott, Heidi, thanks for coming on NavChat. I'm really looking forward to talking to you because you've just done world university orienteering champs, right? Yep, yep. Um, about a week ago we did that and we're now just kind of finishing our holiday through Italy before heading back to the cold winter of New Zealand. Yeah, nice, nice. So a little background, was that your first big trip to race orienteering overseas or have you done a few more? Um, yeah, so for me it was my first big international trip. Um, before that I did Oceania and Australia and Champs a couple of times, um, but first time heading any further than in Australia and yeah first time at any kind of major championship level as well I guess. Um, I was a bit different I'd been to the last World Unis four years ago um, so it was somewhat familiar um, mm -hmm. but still quite different. Yeah how did it feel to be back? 
really good. Um, nice to see some familiar faces from last time and yeah. Cool. So the last few years have been uh, pretty choppy for um, a lot of us with not that much racing on. Uh, how were you feeling going into uh, the, these races in Europe? Was this um, like there for the experience or had you been training quite hard uh, leading into it and um, keen to push yourself to, to get some results? Um, yeah, I think both of us had a bit of a rocky build-up with injuries um, and then we both got COVID what, about two months before the competition, um, which took us a while to kind of shake off and we tried to do it a bit cautiously. So it was more experience. Um, I ended up running all the individual events. Um, I was the only one of the guys to do that and definitely by the end of the week I was pretty wrecked, but I was also glad I did and I, I think we kind of took advantage of all the training opportunities as well um because yeah i'm like in your first run in europe it's very hard to perform at your top level um so i think yeah definitely for me it was more about the experience um particularly yeah relevant stuff for what next year maybe mm -hmm. so what was the strategy like getting uh, dumped into switzerland right i'll let you describe the terrain and what the strategy was like uh trying to learn the, the new terrain and how much time did you have available uh, before racing and yeah what was the plan there um so when we got here we ended up going over to the walk um 2023 training area and doing a lot of stuff there which wasn't super relevant for world uni terrain but it was it was i guess a good step to kind of get into some new stuff and start using different techniques that we might not use so much at home um so we were there for about three or four days and then we moved over to the well, Juni's terrain and did a couple of forest trainings there um, on what was basically the long and the middle distance terrains, um, and that was super, super helpful. It was quite different, a lot more track running, particularly for the long, um, which I guess I wasn't really expecting so much based off last time where it was a lot more compass and go. This was a lot more... You still did a lot of compass and go, but there was a lot more tracks and distractions kind of popping up. I guess a bit like Woodhill sometimes with the motorbike tracks and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it was nice doing the first few days and maybe more similar terrain to some of the stuff we see here, um, like Canaan Downs, some of the stuff we were running on in the first first few days were quite similar to that, um, with that kind of almost alpine, you know, rocky features trying to get used to the mapping a little bit, the whole knoll versus boulder argument that seems to go on that we're a bit out of um, in New Zealand. And also just, yeah, the, like the, the rock feature mapping takes a while to get used to uh, where, you know, anything we kind of map in New Zealand, anything over about half a metre, we're like, oh, great, a rock, something for control on. Um, then you come here where there's rocks everywhere and they're like, great, you know, nothing under three metres is even shown on the map and you've got to kind of, okay, that's a boulder boulder. The rest of these are just, you know, just crap on the ground. No one cares about that. Um, and then, yeah, moving on to the actual actual World Universities training areas um, with, yeah, like Heidi was saying, big track networks um, and lots and lots of rides that we don't really get in New Zealand. Just kind of adjusting the technique and I think we get quite used to looking at, you know, anything like a track or a ride in New Zealand, you're usually looking at better runnability than the forest. Um, whereas over here, that's not always the case. Some of the tracks are pretty overgrown towards the end of summer. Um, particularly the rides were just terrible to try and run along. But they're useful for now. But I guess the key 
key kind of thing to adjust for me definitely was it's all about like getting onto the track and then picking the right point to go off the track to get the control. And if you get that right, then that's basically everything. That's the whole kind of leg done. Um, but if you screw up your exit off the track or you're kind of 10, 20 degrees off, very quickly you end up wandering off down into some green or something um, and you're wasting time immediately. So it's kind of that like finer details. Um, that was, yeah, really, really the strategy that I kind of picked up in that training week. Mm-hmm. Did, did you did you find that that strategy to be um, the yeah. solution for you as well? Yeah, oh. it was kind of get onto the tracks, get the speed on the tracks, and then yeah, just get the right point off. Um, that was kind of what I did most of the way because we used the long and the relay were the same map, so it was um, yeah, kind of doing that that quite a bit. Just get the track and that that sounds easy, it. right? Like you're basically just doing a lot of tracks, so. Where does the difficulty come? Hey, I've, I've been there bef- some of these places before as well, so um, I do know what it's like. So, yeah, can you explain where the difficulty comes in a lot of this terrain? Um, with the long, it really was more just the physical aspect that was the difficult side. It was, to us, it felt a lot like an orangey-yellow, just really long, and I guess by the time you got to an hour an hour and a half into it you were getting fatigued and kind of starting to make mistakes because of that aspect as opposed to it being super technical um but the vegetation was kind of the main thing i think where you kind of got into a little bit of green and just got thrown off um yeah whereas do you have any yeah i think possibly we get a little bit used to in new zealand running woodhill type white forest and then you come to Europe and the kind of the nicer forest, like even the white and stuff, is a bit more undergrowth and some more, you know, bushy kind of things that are obscuring your visibility and you end up getting pushed around a little bit more. And uh, you typically see the European guys, I don't know about the girls, probably the girls too, when they come past, you know, they're running dead straight right through it, just bashing through it, kind of weaving really nicely. And I think I especially found that, yeah, once you leave the track, you've actually got to kind of hold that direction really well. And, you know, if you've got an attack point or something, great, but sometimes you kind of don't. You're just leaving the track with a bearing and trying to hit the control. And if you don't, if you get pushed around a little bit, it's very easy to kind of not know where you are. And that's where I think that's where the difficulty that I found came in. And then, yeah, I mean, that was the navigation of difficulty. And then, yeah, just the physicality. Um, yeah, no, we know any other running kind of strength or speed of some of these top guys. So it's just. Yeah, matter of, for me, um, kind of being quite conservative at the start, seeing a few people come flying past on the track route choices and just mm-hmm. letting go, you know, that, that's not the race today um, mm-hmm. and just trying to, yeah, save a bit of energy for the end. Oh, yeah, that definitely fits my um, recollection of, of some of that terrain. It looks very easy on paper and, yeah, it turns out I can hold a straight line in nice white New Zealand sand dunes, but... Just yeah, out of practice, holding a straight line in this like slightly more wild, wild forest. Yeah, definitely, it was, it was frustrating at first when you, you think you can do cover spare, it's fine. You haven't had a problem with a cover spare in the past two years, and then turns out you're you suck suddenly. So yeah, um, if you were to prepare for this again, or you know, provide advice for someone younger who was looking to do their first. Uh, competition um, in quite a foreign place like many of these countries in Europe uh, what would you what would you suggest what 
do you think um, is worth uh, doing right in the, the build-up and the preparation? You can start. Um, yeah, I guess I think oh, I felt I really lacked like physicality and terrain, um, which is something that, yeah, because I had a bit of a rocky build-up, so I just didn't have time to kind of build that strength and endurance and terrain running. Um, but it's definitely something that we lack compared to a lot of the Europeans. Right. And if you want to, if you want to do well, you kind of need that. Um, possibly, yeah, more so running strength than like out and out speed. I think is more important. Um, so, and so just being able let's, to hold it. let's drill down on that a little bit. So, yeah, what do you mean by running strength? Is that strength up hills, or is this to do with the obstacles and the soft ground? Yeah, as the obstacles in the soft ground, I guess maybe more so in the middle this year, especially than the at rock than the long. Just the like the speed through terrain and like, you know, leaping over obstacles and round bushes and stuff. Um, or even more so than like, you know, there's just the pure like running speed was probably more important. I don't think I could like there were a lot of legs where I just couldn't run any faster. Like I could try and run faster physically. I could run faster, but like with the actual ground, I couldn't run through the terrain any faster than I was. And I think that's something that, yeah, I probably could have done better. And I'd probably, yeah, encourage people to try and get out and you know the crappiest terrain they can find and give it a go. Just try and you know get better at that because um, it is a massive skill. It's a massive advantage to have. It's one thing to run super fast on a track or a road or have like a you know really good 3k time trial before you go overseas but actually being able to run through the terrain at race speed really fast is kind of another thing i think yeah Heidi. yeah i I definitely agree with that um that just the get out get out onto terrain as much as you can um find a bit of forest run through that uh just yeah and study up beforehand it doesn't hurt to look at the maps beforehand and once you're there, actually spend as much time in terrain, not necessarily killing yourself running heaps, but just get as much kind of time surrounded by it just so that you know what to expect and nothing's kind of a surprise when you get to it. Cool. Yes, some really interesting thoughts there and um, hopefully things that people can put into practice in the years to come. So thanks and um, yeah, well done for the competitions and enjoy the rest of your time traveling. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. So how does Scott and Heidi's experience map onto your own? So I think so thing about holding a bearing, especially in rougher terrain. So a lot of Europe won't have open white forest. There'll be bushes on the ground or felled trees. Um, visibility might be lower. And the skill that a lot of European orienteers have is just keeping that dead straight compass bearing throughout that type of terrain, which we don't have so much experience practicing with in New Zealand. Um, and the other point Scott made that I really um, resonated with was talking about strength and terrain, which um, I think also because of the, the same different nature of the terrain over there is, is something that we do struggle with. And I myself have found that Perhaps my pure running speed on a road isn't too bad um, compared to a lot of the other girls. Uh, and that's not surprising considering I end up doing quite a bit of training on roads. And surprisingly, I sort of wondered whether, you know, strength training in a gym, lifting weights might actually uh, help with some of that resilience to fatigue in terrain. But I don't know that it does. I think it's just very specific, this um, fitness in terrain that you need to do well in these European races. I'm not sure that 
even doing um, strength training in a gym, though I think that's really um, important, um, it, it still somehow doesn't quite mimic what you need to uh, do well in a walk long distance. Yeah, I've definitely felt that uh, when I was younger, um, before I'd done any of that tough terrain over there. Mm. Is that um, I was very fast on the road compared to these guys. And yeah, but then, yeah, we would struggle when the terrain got stony or really wet, especially. Yeah. Um, but interesting yeah. that you say when you were younger, because I, I would probably agree with that. Um, and that just being a bit older now, I do feel that my fatigue resistance is actually better than what it was. Even if I haven't actually spent much time in Europe over the last few years, maybe just those years of doing orienteering has actually helped me develop a bit of that. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought that was really interesting and looking forward to um, seeing if they, if they go back to Europe, whether they follow a, a similar trajectory to us, getting stronger in terrain as um, they get more places under their belt. Yeah. Yeah. And actually another interesting point that um, Heidi raised was spending a lot of time in the terrain. And I think as time goes on, I've become more of an advocate for, for doing just that. But obviously with the caveat that it has to be at slow speed um, and, that's actually quite valuable to spend time just in, in the terrain, looking around, learning how the features um, are mapped um, without taxing your legs. Uh, I think that's pretty key. And I used to think that it wouldn't be a useful session if I wasn't, you know, actually running and trying to do some race pace or just below race pace. But um, actually, no, you can get a lot out of it um, by just walking around and maybe the trade-offs are actually pretty high if you push yourself too hard in that, that training week, given how close it is to the competition. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that's another really good point. So you've brought some topics along with you today, I can see. Um, yeah. Do you want to um, lead us off? Yeah. Yeah, so um, we've had some interesting overseas competitions in August. And at the start of August, um, in particular, we had uh, the European Orienteering Championships, which um, had a bit of drama and I, I thought would be uh, good to discuss. Um, so I don't know if, yeah, you followed the races closely, but um, so basically at the start of August were the European Orienteering Championships and they were held in Estonia in the northern part I think just east of the, the capital Tallinn. Um, we've actually both of us been to Estonia before um, and run uh, the world championships when that was there in 2017. Um, but this was quite a bit uh, more to the north of where Wok was. And um, looking at the maps, it appears that they were quite a lot more green uh, than where we were running. Although we, we had our share of green patches um, in Wok 2017, but this was even a bit worse, I think. Um, and looking at some of the comments from the elite orienteers who uh, went to that competition, it seems like they found the same. They found the terrain um, quite dense and uh, hard to get through and really hard to hold a direction, uh, even for these uh, experienced European orienteers. Uh, so the EOC um, started uh, with a middle uh, qualification uh, and that was quite an interesting race. There were some uh, big names making big mistakes. Um, and one of the interesting ones that uh, I noted was um, the eventual silver medalist of the long distance didn't even qualify uh, for the 
middle final. So that was um, Elias Kuka from Finland. Uh, and then a lot of other big names making lots of minutes of mistakes. Um, in fact, Martin Regborn, who then went and won the long distance, also didn't qualify as he was disqualified. So it was a there was a bit of um, upheaval there. And just wondering if you wanted to um, make any comments on the, the middle qual or pull up any maps. Yeah, so you can see there's quite a lot of green there. And then there's um, green stripe as well in that scattered open area. Um, so maybe if we just, uh, yeah, look at Toby's GPS coming into number three. Uh, so we can see Toby uh, Scott here in, uh, in the purple, purple, purple coming GPS down from control too. He's looking good so far. I guess we don't know if he knows where he's crossing the track. And now he's uh, entered this green area. And this is where a lot of the competitors struggle, ending up in these green patches and being uncertain exactly where you are. Yeah, so it, it's, it's worth noting with a leg like this, when I look at this, I can imagine being on the straight line, but actually not really that sure uh, where I am because the visibility is so low. And crossing this track, well, it's actually mapped as a ride, so it could, it could be fairly overgrown. Mm. That's not necessarily a lifesaver. Um, but yeah. it could be if you stop and find the corner and then restart again from the corner that bend in the ride. But yeah, it's yeah. hard hard to know exactly what's going on there. But yeah, what are your thoughts on on why the mistakes here? And Toby, we're not just picking on Toby. Like there were many, no, this is... many others <laughs> floundering in this area. Um, yeah, lots of experienced yeah. orienteers um, struggling. So, so why did he struggle? Um, I think. I, I can only assume that he didn't know exactly where he crossed that ride or track and um, and ended up in the wrong depression and then tried to, to find it or relocate but went to the south and that was obviously going to be really, really a, um, a struggle to find anything to um, navigate off in there given it's pretty much blank. Um, but I guess he could have thought he hadn't gone far enough and he thought that there was a spur to catch him or, or something like that. But um, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not perfect at this either, but um, relocating quicker in this stuff, like going to something that you know will be really obvious, um, is definitely the best way to go. Um, and maybe he wasn't quick enough to do that, uh, or it just took a long time to get out of there as well. Yeah, it is a fairly terrifying area, and trying to relocate in the thick of it looks like a pretty tough ask, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So the the place to relocate would would be the that ride, or um, maybe you could get out to a high point off to the west. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there, or yeah, like getting out to to a corner, like a forest corner, like that could kind of be helpful. But I mean, I struggle to see anything in here being distinct enough to use. Yeah. Yeah. It all looks much the same. Yeah, okay. So that was um, the middle distance qualification and then the top 20 from each of the three heats went through to the final. Um, and then the following day, I believe, it was the long distance race. Um, and this was similarly a pretty um, interesting race to discuss. Uh, so the terrain looked kind of similar. Maybe we can... Um, 
pull up a map. I think you've got, is that the middle there? Yeah, so this is the, yeah, this is the long area. So again, there's some patches of dense vegetation, um, a lot of more sort of white appearing forest on this map. But again, I think um, this is typical Europe that it, it may well be a lot denser than we perceive it just looking at it from home um, and a lot of marsh areas as well. Uh, but the sort of controversial um, thing that happened in this long distance race was that uh, there was an interesting route choice and you can see it on this uh, long leg from four to five. Uh, so so this, this long leg here, um, you've got a route where you can either go around to the side um, and they've, they've created this out of bounds area um, blocking off some of the tracks. So kind of trying to drive the competitors to go around to either the left or right um, at some distance. Um, but the interesting thing was at the end of the day, the fastest times actually came from people who went relatively straight, stayed on the road and then crossed over that river that's got the black lines around it. So they crossed the river briefly and then jumped back on the road. So they spent uh, as much possible time on the road and it was actually a pretty straight route. But interestingly, I think there was some misunderstanding with the course organizers because they had not expected anyone to be crossing that uncrossable river. So, so this is a uncrossable river in ISOM specifications, but because this is forest and not sprint orienteering, what uncrossable means in this setting is that um, it may not be passable to cross, but it's not explicitly forbidden that you can't go across it. So if you want to take your chances, you can try and cross the river. And that's what a lot of people ended up doing. And it ended up being the fastest. But I'm not sure whether this is a totally fair race because there's so much variability in how uh, a river of this sort of size could appear on the ground. It's, it's a bit of luck as to whether you... Uh, think that it's worth giving it a shot and trying to cross it. Apparently it was up to waist or even chest high in some places where, where some of the competitors crossed it. So you could also argue it's a bit risky. So I think really to be fair on this leg, the, the safer thing would have been to use the out of bound symbol and extend it further across the river or just say to the competitors that for the purpose of this race, the river is not crossable, it's forbidden to cross. What do you think? Yeah. Um, I also recall there might, there may have been instructions in the, the, the team meetings beforehand for the athletes that they may have had more information. I think I recall some presentation floating around, but yeah, there was a then, pre presentation from the, um, the, the meeting, um, the team officials meeting prior to the event. And they, they had simply said, I, I looked it up and, um, they'd simply said that uncrossable uh, rivers, so that, that there was a river on the map and parts of it were uncrossable and that there would be tape over those areas that were uncrossable. That was um, this bit here, wasn't it? Yeah, that's all they focused elsewhere. on. Yeah. yeah, so I guess my take is that this is just a cautionary tale for organisers, that yeah. if you are going to do something funky like this, you have to be running a really tight ship. You have to have all your your, your um, T's crossed and I's dotted. You cannot just put a tape out in the forest and kind of expect people to behave the way you would. Um, yeah. I think that was, yeah, just maybe a bit, um, a bit loose from the organizers to do that. 
Uh, I also heard that if you look really closely, and you can see this actually quite clearly on this image, um, you can see that the out of bounds area does go into the blue, into the water. Mm. So there's actually an area in the water that you're also not allowed to go in, yet it was quite possible for athletes to travel on the water's edge. Yeah, clearly on, some on people have done without, that. Yeah. yeah, without going across the tape because the tape had actually ended. So are mm. you, as an athlete, supposed to be using the tape to show where the edge of the out-of-bounds is? Or are you supposed to be inferring from the map where the edge of the out-of-bounds is in the terrain? Um, it's yeah. it's mapped or it's placed on the map to show that there's tape on the edge. So it, it's now actually ambiguous and it's hard to say whether those athletes who followed the water's edge were in the out-of-bounds or not because on the map they're in the out-of-bounds but in the terrain they weren't in the out-of-bounds because they never crossed the tape. So you've got to be running a really tight ship if you're going to start putting um bonus out of bounds areas in the terrain yeah. the edge of them has to be has to be exactly as it is uh, on the map otherwise you get uh, antics like like this happening so yeah i think event organizers are still they're still quite new doing this stuff for forest isn't it i don't know if i've yeah. really seen i've seen out of bounds areas in various maps but it's normally for ecological reasons where they tape off marshland and stuff they don't want people tracing yeah. through so kind of strangely shaped areas like this that are not naturally obvious in the terrain. Uh, Needs to be really a, well marked, yeah. Yeah, it's a new and, thing, um, so I guess we're still learning. You, you can also see from the tracking that some people even ran on the road straight through the out-of-bounds, and apparently for some of the later competitors, there had been a tape over the road, but it had sort of fallen down onto the ground, so it was really not obvious. Um, so it wasn't just one person who made that mistake, it was... It was several, which I, I guess just goes to show that when you're traveling at speed and you're under the pressure of um, a long orienteering race, uh, you, you sometimes don't see these things, and it does have to be very obvious. But, yeah, as, as you said, um, one of the competitors, um, Gernot Imsen from, from Austria, was, was saying that he also did not really expect um, – artificial out-of-bounds areas in a forest event. Like we're, we're accustomed to those in sprint races, but there wasn't really something on his radar for this kind of race. And maybe that's why he ended up running just on the road through through the um, out-of-bounds tape. Uh, but yeah, maybe this is something we need to come to grips to. And like you say, it needs to be very well and clearly demarcated. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um... Yeah, well, I think that's a good. Yeah, so that was an interesting, again, an interesting race. Some 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 big names that um, lost a lot of time, like Simona Aversold, who would be one of the favourites. She she won um, the middle and sprint at the World Games recently, um, and she had an eight or so minute mistake on one of the controls. Um, and the um, eventual winner was Ven Lahaju in the women. Um, and uh, yeah, so she was kind of surprised by by her win, hadn't expected it, but that was really cool to see. And uh, yeah, there were a few Finnish competitors that finished really high up, and I I wonder if they kind of have a maybe it's a bit of an advantage being um, somewhat closer to this type of terrain and having um, trained in it more recently or, or more frequently. There were a few uh, favourites that didn't do quite as well on the men's side, like Casper um, Fossa wasn't quite. Um, as fast as we usually see him running um, 
And uh, on the women's side, um, Tove Alexanderson, I think she was 14. She lost a lot of time on that race. And um, yeah, this is an interesting point when you have terrain that's that's as green or as as rough as um, what we're seeing here. Uh, it does seem to shake things up a bit and you get some different names coming to the fore and being successful. And um, is that is that a good thing or is that a point where it becomes somewhat unfair to have uh, terrain that's so so rough and hard going that it becomes a bit of a gamble as to whether you get a good line through the forest. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think it does tend to average out as long as the race is long enough. And I think, yeah, over 20 minutes, we've all hit a random fallen down tree. Um, we've all hit a marsh that was wetter than we expected. Um, we've all run into a stony patch that wasn't um, shown so I think in the middle distance race I think it's I tend that that's my guess is that it's it's long enough that these variations cancel out and the fact that we get unexpected winners on this race is more suggestive that a lot of the season is in terrain that people are very well um, used to they're, they're very uh, used to the style of navigation and very confident mm. um, so I think this is just more reflective of terrain where people are less confident. Um, yeah. And it, yeah, it's um, people are more prone to mistakes, right? And mistakes are very non-linear event. When someone makes a mistake, uh, it's suddenly, you know, they're losing every now and again, you lose five to 10 seconds on, on each leg compared to the fastest split. And then suddenly you lose two or three minutes on one leg, right? It's, it's just totally, out of the normal range of time loss. And as soon as you start chucking in big, um, like out of proportion time losses into someone's legs, then yeah, you're going to get unexpected finished draws, unexpected finished results. Um, so I think that's, it's just um, what happens when you have terrain that's more variable, but I don't think it's unfair. I think mm. uh, the, the, the randomness that matters, like un unexpectedly running into falling down trees and obstacles, um, I think that averages out. Yeah, it, it should over time. Okay, yeah, so following the middle distance, um, we had the relay, um, and uh, there was an interesting um, clip which we can show you here. So um, Switzerland managed to uh, salvage a potential disaster in their relay. Um, so Serena Kiberts, um picked up the wrong map on the way to handover, uh, and um, Elena Roos noticed um, this, so maybe you can show this clip. She's actually managed to close a little bit of the, the it gap. It was three minutes, 3.15 or something. So she's actually worked really hard to be able to catch that up. Oh, it's the wrong map. Oh. Oh, well, at well, least well. they noticed. Well done by good Elena Rose. Yeah, really good job from Elena Rose. Yeah, so it's great to see that um, Elena's double-checking. Um, uh, and, you know, it's... I don't know that that's something that we do in New Zealand or are taught. And um, maybe this is something that we should have as part of our, our routine is to, you know, be rigorous about um, things like team number, map number. Um, yeah. There's, there's certain sort of administrative um, processes that sometimes we, we don't nail when we go overseas um, coming from New Zealand. I'm thinking of like making administrative errors 
such as um, going to the wrong control or missing a control as well, which we have seen happening a bit this season in Europe. So um, I thought that was just a, a good reminder that we do need to drill these administrative processes into us um, in order to not have those frustrating experiences where we pick up the wrong map or we miss out a control or we do a run on the parallel leg um, in our course. Yeah, as much as those kind of errors do seem completely random and unpredictable, they always happen under times of maximum stress, maximum mm. duress. Uh, I think because there's multiple things going through your brain and there's a higher probability of something getting kicked off the conveyor belt too early. So um, when I tend to be making these yeah, missing control and things like that, reading, reading the wrong control, like it always happens when I'm really pushing it. Um, so, and I guess yeah. that's what's happening there um, with the, the Swiss team that it was right at the end. She must've been completely exhausted um, yeah. and just grabbed the wrong map from the board, despite probably eyeballing it from some distance away. Uh, yeah. Just upon getting close, grabbed the wrong one. What I was really impressed about was just like the, how, how quick it was for uh, Elena Roos to send yeah. um, T-Birds back. Like yeah. she, she must've been looking at it, eyeballing it the whole way. And that makes a lot more sense because those are the fresh pair of eyes. Yeah. Um, not the person who's <laughs> completely exhausted at the end. So yeah, that's right. If you're uh, going to have a checking mechanism, have it be the person that's more fresh. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. That was a nice little find actually. Um, so yeah, thanks for sharing that one. Um, I've got uh, a topic as well that I uh, also wanted to share. So here we can see the map from uh, World University Champs. So uh, we talked to uh, Scott and Heidi earlier. Uh, this is the long distance, the terrain they were running on. And I'm, I'm just interested in talking about the World Uni races themselves and more discussing what is the purpose in, or what is the, the use to us as future orienteers, future racers, uh, in having all these GPS, um, all these GPS tracking files on the internet. Um, maybe it's just entertainment. Maybe it is just fun to go back and rewatch them. But there are some really interesting training things you can do with a lot of this GPS tracking. And there are also a lot of things that tracking is not very useful for. So I thought I would share my thoughts on how best to use all these GPS tracking um, files that are set up uh, on the internet now. And they just stay there for forever as far as I can tell. So we can go back years. Um, the first thing that I think is really useful to do with the GPS tracking is compare route choices. Um, you can quite easily just right click on one control and mass start um, from that control. And all, all the different tracking websites have um, some version of that feature. And then you can play through uh, using the slider or just letting the letting the time go by and get a sense for where people are moving faster and where they're not moving faster. And I think that's as good as, as any route choice training is you predict what's going to be the fastest way and then test your prediction and see if it um, meets reality. This is even more useful than you trying to do a route choice training on your own, because even if you do a route choice training on your own and you only run one route choice on each leg, you still don't know what way is fastest. You haven't got the feedback to make that comparison. So in order to do a route choice training, you need multiple people 
synchronized. Yeah, the, the, the more data points, the better. And you're not going to be able to do all of those um, routes yourself. Um, there just wouldn't be time. That's right. It becomes really time consuming to test them all fairly. And here's the best test you're going to get. Everyone's in the same situation. They're all in, under race conditions. Um, you can trust that they're all running fairly hard and it's all done on the same day and you can, you've got lots of, lots of data points to look at. So you can, you can compare in this particular case that is actually very even the big split that happens at the start. Mm. Um, it's very even. And did you predict that? If so, um, that's the correct answer is that it actually didn't matter which way you chose, which way you chose. It was going to be the same. And if you can even predict that, that doesn't mean that the root choice that this information is useful because you need to know when the root choice doesn't matter to not spend any more time planning it. Mm, so yeah. that's also, um, well, yeah, also a useful answer to know. So that's one thing you can do uh, with uh, the GPS tracking. Um, the other thing to do with the GPS tracking, now this is the middle distance from World University Championships, is to see where people are making the most mistakes. So again, you can uh, restart um, at one leg and see how many people made a mistake on this leg. And you can also, you know, take a look at wind splits to see where the blowouts are. So it looks like there weren't, there wasn't uh, many people having a problem with number, number one. And you can also do this with number two, see who's having trouble with number two, not many people. And you have to look, look around the course and find the controls where suddenly there's an explosion of mistakes. Now, this course doesn't look like um, there's anything that's going to turn into huge mistakes because there's a lot of tracks and fences um, bounding the terrain. But you can definitely tell uh, in, in some terrains where the big mistakes are happening. And that's an indicator of the amount of risk on that particular leg. And if you can predict that kind of stuff in advance, you can flip a map over and say, that is a risky leg. I've seen enough of this before. I've watched GPS tracking in many races, and I know that that kind of leg is dangerous. That is really useful. And that is something that is also very hard to do on your own, because if you're just going through a leg um, on your own, you might actually get a very risky control. You might actually do it quite well. But the risk is that one in 20 times you will make a big mistake on it. And again, having all these data points here, you get that one in 20 shows up when there's 60 people on the start line. You can see the legs that have uh, more mistakes on them. So I think this is a huge, huge resource that people um, should get into, especially if they're going to a new type of terrain, find all the GPS tracking on similar terrain, have a play through. Where do people make the big mistakes? Is it going these diagonal downhill legs or is it the flat areas? Is it the really detailed areas or yeah, the really vague areas? Um, so, yeah. yeah, I think. I, I just wanted to add one other thing that I would get out of GPS tracking, and that's particularly um, in those areas where you're not familiar with the terrain. As, as you say, you're not like you haven't been there or not quite sure what it what it looks like um, is actually the micro route choices. And sometimes I've looked at GPS and thought I would take the valleys, but actually they're taking the hills or they're actually um, going on the bare rock and the bare rock is a good um, place to to run or you know that it gives you some clue as to what features might be more obvious in the terrain um or or just where the runability is a bit better on a, in a sort of micro route choice level yeah 
Yeah, that's another good point. And maybe this terrain isn't the, the best to indicate that because it looks like the running surfaces, um, there aren't those tiny, vari those local variations in running surface. But for example, some places in Sweden where you've got bare rock right beside the marsh um, and in different places in Sweden and in Norway, it might be better to run on the marsh or might be better to run on the rock. And it uh, yeah. is worth, yeah, worth kind of knowing where all the top, <laughs> all the top people go, where, where do the locals, locals go? Because Yeah, Scandinavia is where that's particularly useful, I think, with, with marshes and their seasonality and the change in vegetation and the different types of rock. I think, yeah, all those things will affect um, your microbrew choice decisions. Mm. All right. What are you looking forward to over um, the coming the coming months? Uh, have you got plans to um, focus on anything, or are you still just going to wait until the um, urge to enter some races emerges naturally? Yeah, I think that's that's a key point. Is if you're training for a race, or well, for me anyway, and I suspect it's true for a lot of people, is that you need um, the mental the mental side to be there as well. You need to mentally feel invested and recovered and motivated to want to push hard in a race. Um, so I'm not quite feeling that pull just yet. So I think I'll, I'll be just taking things as they come for a while. And of course, the other unknown factor is COVID, which seems to have quite a variable recovery time when it comes to athletics. And so I'm going to have to be really careful, just um, listen to my body and see if I'm fatigued, if I'm feeling lightheaded or having high heart rate or shortness of breath. These are all unfortunately things that people can experience after COVID some weeks or even months after the infection, even if it's mild. So, so I'll just be playing that by ear and seeing how I feel. Cool. Yeah. Same here. So yeah. hope it goes well and yeah. look forward to seeing you um, whenever you uh, co-host again on NavChat. Yeah, so thanks for, sure. for joining in. Cool. Thank you. If you liked the show, please support it by sharing this podcast with one person who would benefit from it. The best place to find more content like this is at genebeverage.nz, where you can find years of training blogs, race reports, podcasts, and coaching videos. If you don't want to miss future episodes, I recommend subscribing to my newsletter by visiting genebeverage.nz or by following on social media, Perfect Flow on Facebook and Gene Beverage on Instagram. For Q&A, send messages to nav at perfectflow.nz.